0: Welcome to The Dealmaker Show, the number one place for entrepreneurs and dealmakers to learn about leveraging and generating status,
1: frame control, and narrative power to close big deals. Here is your host, investment banker, dealmaking expert, and best-selling author of Pitch
0: Anything and Flip the Script, Mr. Oren Klaff.
1: Hey, I'm Orrin Kleff, and this is the DealMaker Podcast. I'm on with Brendan Cahill, the CEO and president of Exelon Resources. Brendan, did I get that all right? Got it right. Thanks, Orrin. Great to Thank be here. Thank God. You. The introductions are so important, because otherwise somebody's mad at me the entire broadcast. So listen, uh, we have these wonderful PR people, and this is the DealMaker Podcast. And many times they'll bring me, you know, this is Mary Smith. She's the CEO of a company that knits blankets for old people, <laughs> and, and you know, and I got to figure out what do I do with this. But I look at you, and Exelon, and I take one look at it, and I, I feel like we've lived in parallel resources. Like all you do is deal making, deal making, deal making. You don't sell stacks of paper. You don't sell SaaS software. You don't have trained, you know, salespeople are out door knocking and have little pitches. Like you do deals. So I was really looking forward to talking to you about the deal-making universe that you live in. And so not only are you doing you know, deal-making like a real estate guy would do or venture capital or private equity, but you're doing it in sort of the most high stakes industry you know, which is mining. So you have uncertainty, you have deal-making, there's a lot of money involved. Uh, it's not, uh, uh, it's, it's unpredictable. There's wins and losses. There's massive competitors. Like, why in the world do you? You're like an MMA fighter, right? That's like, it. That's or, it. Or a Junior League hockey player. Why in the world did you sign up for this challenge? I'm, I'm more like uh, Mike
0: Tyson's sparring partner. It's <laughs> like, what, what an idiot. Like, all of us in this industry. But I mean, that's the fascinating thing about it, right? I think that's what you know draws a certain kind of person and why. People get into the mining industry and the exploration industry and they just never leave, right? Because the buzz is is just different than anywhere else. You know, and you think of like you think of the sweep of history, and let's that's what we're really caught up on, right? And you know, the Romans expanded looking for gold, the the Spanish expanded looking for silver, and we're kind of still doing that. We're right on the cusp. Of of economy, the cusp of, of 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 civilization, really. And you go to some crazy places when you're doing that. It's a lot of
1: fun. So so this is what I love about you. And and um, again, I always wonder, like, there's these three hour podcasts, and I go, why would any podcast need to be longer than 20 minutes? I do not have 20 minutes. But then you meet someone like Brendan and you can go, I need three hours. <laughs> but, but but here's where my mind goes, like, if you sell SaaS software. No disregard to you. We buy a lot. We sell a lot of our companies. If you have med, you know med tech device, you're helping people. But you aren't in, you know, most of the industries that we intersect with. You're not in the arc of history. Yeah, as exactly. you are. Yeah. And so, th- just tell us a little bit about the business, so we could get some perspective uh, on on just you know, as you said, you go to these places. You do these deals. You're thinking about economy and global scale economics, and just just give us a window into your world. I'm fascinated.
0: Well, go even crazier
1: than that. Like I was thinking about this today,
0: right? Like you know, Bitcoin versus gold and all the buzz over Bitcoin and everything. But like our industry is actually elemental, right? What we sell are the very elements of the earth, and those come from supernovas, right? They don't come from computers. You know, gold comes from a supernova. We try to find that. So we don't have control over the price that we sell it at. All we can do is try to extract it in as, as, as efficient a way as possible. Um, so, you know, you have to go to places that nobody else goes to. Uh, you have to work uh, in, in in very difficult areas. And you become a, a critical part of the communities that you work in. And, you know, through through my career, I've gone from you know, major boardroom deals, uh, working with, with Barrick, a junior lawyer at the time, um, you know, one of their advisors on the biggest M&A deal in Canada at the time, um, all the way through to negotiating you know, land acquisitions in West Africa with, with farmers and people who are trying to build up their communities. Uh, and, so, and that's so right on the well, edge of
1: kind of there. Let me jump in there because no great story starts with uh, we landed in Zurich and decided <laughs> to have a salad. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. In uh, uh, in Switzerland. Uh, so, d- d- tell us about somewhere you've been that is just off the grid, and you wouldn't, you know, reasonably want to want to go there unless a it was your job, b the stakes were high, c the economic opportunity was high. Yeah, I, I
0: mean, um, everywhere I go, I enjoy. It, right. So, like, you know, and there's tough places to go, right? Um, you know, Ghana. Like Baltimore? Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Dallas <laughs> Airport. That was enough for me. <laughs> but, um, you know, you go to a place like Ghana, right? It's in West Africa, like tons of malaria there, right? But the most beautiful people you could ever imagine. The, you know, they're just the, the most genuine, beautiful people, right? And it's, it's, a, it's a place that is surrounded by countries that had serious strife for years and you have Ghana, this gem of a country, right? But massive amounts of malaria. The food, with all due respect, is not the best, right? But you, you push through and you, you go into the, the communities and you, and you meet people. And, and I think that's the story you know, everywhere I've been. Sierra Leone, another tough country, right? But beautiful people and you find the best part of, of it. And like, that's the difference, I think, a little bit of the difference in mining is that we go there and we love the countries and we love the cultures if we're gonna be successful right? So there's some tough spots. You go up 5,000 meters in Peru, you know, it's, the breathing's tricky, right? But it's an extraordinary place to go. And so many times I'd be like, I can't believe this is on work hours right now. Most people would be spending God knows how much to do a
1: tour. Um, Okay. Well, hold on. This is, again, that's why I said it, but like my seven-year-old comes home. I go, how was school today? He goes, yeah, it was good. I'm like, did you, good what? He's like, yeah, um, it was fun. We had math and reading. Yeah. But what did you do? Oh, nothing. So, <laughs> <laughs> so, I can't let somebody off the hook and go, you know, I went to Sierra, Le- Sierra Leone. I went to Ghana and uh, you know, it was fun. The food was in there. Yeah. Great. Yeah, but, you yeah, know, yeah. So you land in Ghana. Yeah. Right. Yeah.
0: So, so Ghana, that's, that's an amazing story um, how we got there. And it's, it's kind of, you know, I was working with a company called Planjo at the time it was before I, I was at Exelon and Ingrid Hibbard was the CEO who had, Who had done an incredible deal with a company called Detour uh, Gold, which is now Canada's largest gold mine. And kind of during the time of nurturing that asset into a a transaction, which ended up resulting in something like 11,000% returns for shareholders, she she had the opportunity to pick up this ground right beside one of the largest gold mines in the world, Abwasi in the middle of Ghana. Right. And it was it was a complete about turn. She was in northern Ontario, but saw the opportunity to pick up this huge 300 square kilometer land package right beside this massive mine. So that's how the company got into Ghana and then tricky exploration. So then we started looking for other assets in the country as well and uh, ended up coming across this, this mine right down from another or this project right down from a mine called the HAFO that nobody could work. You know, the communities didn't like the way the people worked in that ground. And uh, so we went in there, we negotiated with uh, the local landowners Ended up doing a very good deal, which was good for them and good for us. Uh, then sat down, had tea with the, the local people, described what we were doing. We had good Guinean um, partners in it as well. And uh, we managed to get drills on the ground where nobody else could and ended up making discovery after discovery after discovery. And that's that the that's the key part of, of, of what we do, this exploration and discovering new gold deposits. That's your R&D. That's how you invent the thing that you sell, eventually produce and then sell it.
1: Okay. So, so this is fucking amazing at 19 different levels. Uh, and I just want to drill down a little bit, no pun intended, mining (laughs) oil and gas. So, okay. How in the United States, in Canada, due diligence the the part of doing a deal in which you are determining if what, you're being told you're gonna to get, you're actually gonna get is very straightforward. I mean, I hired a law firm today that I met yesterday to do due diligence on a $10 million deal. And I'm completely comfortable because this is stamping out beer can work for a law firm and an accounting firm, right? There's, there's gap, there's standards, there's legal standards, the law firm doesn't wanna lose their life. Like due diligence is very straightforward. How is due diligence different once you step outside of Europe, United States and Canada and maybe, you know, Mexico.
0: Yeah, that that's when you're looking at an asset globally like that, and especially in some of these countries, um, you really kind of have to go through this hierarchy of, of kind of needs or, or qualifications to be there at all. The first thing is the rock there. Right? If the rock is there, the product's not there, there's no point going there at all. That's the key. But if they go above that, like title, right? Before you get to the rock. That actually comes after oh, the rock. Because it, if, there's, it, if the rock is in there, if the geology isn't there, it doesn't matter about the title. So,
1: right? so we've all seen the movies, right? Where the guy brings the cocaine, right? <laughs> he puts on the table. And the guy, you know, everybody's got shotguns, you know, and AR-15s. And then the little sciencey German-looking guy takes out the, the heroin testing kit. Yeah. <laughs> right. To see if it's pure. So that's that's the stage where It's testing if the if the heroin is yeah, pure. Yeah. But you, it's kind of like on a bigger theme. Like, is the is the rock there? Right.
0: And then you get into like yeah. you know how many AK forty sevens do you need to actually see the rock? Right. Yeah. If you need too many, you know, you might want to think about going there. Right. And then it's you know is the government supportive of mining? Is the jurisdiction supportive? Is the rule of law there? And then you get more down into the title itself. Um, you know, do you actually have title to what the other person is selling? Or do they have title to it? And, uh, and then you get to, you know, this environmental issues. Are, was there any historical mining that creates an environmental issues? Um, it, so it, and then it, after that, you have I'm all the sorry,
1: I'm sorry interrupting you. It's not because it's just because you're going fast over things that I think is fascinating. And I, yeah. I don't want to just breeze by stuff that, I mean, I know you do this every day, but yeah. know, I'm putting a, my third eye blind on it. And so, for all you little guys out there in SaaS companies and doing e commerce and going, hey, what, what Starbucks should we meet at in Palo Alto? Right? Brandon has to go, you know, how many AR 15s? Well, I, that meet actually, in this I, I okay. try to avoid that as much as possible. Okay. Like, but that's, but I mean,
0: that's why, you know, some companies will take huge risks, right? And with those huge risks, you can get some amazing rock right but you may never be able to get at it we try to with my companies at least try to avoid that as much as possible
1: so is part of part of it just showing up you know is that an advantage or is that the you know just showing up somewhere that's hard to get to potentially you know it's got a state department report don't go there unless you're Stevie Wonder <laughs> 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 um you know the state department you know this is an area that's in turmoil uh, you know the state department recommends you travel on your own volition and you know don't call us if you get into trouble uh, and 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 just the travel you know i've been to africa many times uh you know just the travel to get there is expensive and uh, so is part of this just showing up in a far-flung place or do you go there and there's 17 other guys from toronto running around with mass spectrometers? Yeah. Yeah. yeah,
0: yeah. I mean, Canadians will go anywhere, right? And uh, you've got Canadians, Australians, Americans, some amazing American geologists as well, uh, South Africans, and, and and just not afraid to go to crazy places, right? So there's definite competition. So just showing up doesn't quite work. Um, and and then as well, like it's it's the relationships you build in the country, because one of the problems in our industry is those, those first relationships, right, end up causing massive problems 5, 10, 15, 20 years later, right? So it's really about being, you know true from the start um, and, uh, and never bending from that, right? Otherwise those problems will catch up to you. and they always
1: do. How is forming a relationship in, quote unquote, far-flung places, right? R- rule of law is more in question. Uh, business norms that we're accustomed to is more in question. Gap, uh, you know, legal compliance, due diligence are all sort of wor- cybertronic wormholes that you really have to pay attention to. How is deal making fundamentally different when you remove yourself from the standards and the norms that we're familiar with?
0: Yeah, I actually, I kind of, uh, you know, before I really got into the industry, I had spent a lot of time in India and Southeast Asia, you know, traveling around and um, buying this or buying that. And it was with a buddy of mine who's just a great wheeler dealer. He's up in Calgary now. And uh, we spent so much time, you know, arguing over the price of things, right? And I remember one time I'm like, dude, you're arguing over 15 cents for a trocho right now. That's crazy. He's like, okay, yeah, I've taken it a bit too far, right? But like, you, you know, or in India, stacks of carpets, right? And I remember spending three days once uh, negotiating over a very expensive shawl in, uh, up in Kashmir, right? And eventually, you know, I, I broke the guy, the guy down. I mean, this wasn't cheap. It was like a $200 shawl, right? But I bargained it down from like a crazy $10,000 or something that he wanted, right? It was so landish. And I think at the end of the day, like that's, that's deal-making. So everybody bargains, right? And it doesn't so, matter whether you're you know, doing a $10 billion deal or buying a shawl, right? It's just about my price versus your price and getting to something that's gonna work for both of you, hopefully, and maybe you win a little bit as
1: well. This is something I have always felt to be true, and I'd like to validate it against. Well, well, first of all, I feel like everyone else that I've ever talked to, who has been to the places you've been, been deal making in the kind of ways you, you know, uh, been deal making, and has the life experiences and travel that you have, has like tattoos on their neck, you know, long hair, <laughs> wearing you know Patagonia outfits with Birkenstocks, and and is drinking a beer at eight in the morning. So it's great. Uh, it, it's very interesting to just see uh, a, a you know, someone with your travel and life experiences actually running a company. So so that's fantastic. Most of the people running a company never leave the front door of Washington or Los Angeles or Palo Alto, and these are all internet experiences that you guys are are actually going. So I think that is um, that's fantastic. That I have always felt and, and people ask me all the time that in deal making. Just just
0: one point on that, right? And, and, and I think it's, it's one of the, the beauties of the industry we're in is like place and the physical aspect of things is so utterly fundamentally important, right? And, and I love technology and, and, and all these advancements that are pure creations of the mind. But at the end of the day, we're physical beings and to be actually the, the place and thing being so important is a bit different than a lot of the experiences we get these days and I think very special as well.
1: I feel like this podcast just ended on a high note. I mean, we're going to keep going, <laughs> but if you have something else to do, go do it because that is, I mean, people will come to me and they say, yeah, I met with Kleiner Perkins, you know, to try and get uh, $10 million into my crappy SAS CRM marcom <laughs> startup. And so well, tell me a little bit about it. And they go, well, yeah, we were at the Starbucks, you know, in downtown Palo Alto and look, motherfucker, you don't meet somebody to discuss your destiny, yeah. At a Starbucks with the tiny little you know kid stools near that yeah. you use know, the handicap and yeah. you know um with the, the the noise and the music playing, and that is not the physical location that determines the outcome of your you 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 know you need to go into these environments, the belly of the beast when Bill Gates went to do the fundamental deal that created Microsoft. He went to IBM, the belly of the beast. He didn't say, you know, meet me at Starbucks. There wasn't any then, thank God. But (laughs) you're going, I mean, I think that the thing I'm keen that's triggered me that what you're saying is you're going to the physical places where the deals are and they are hard to get to, potentially dangerous. They are, you're not comfortable. The language isn't innate to you. Um, there is, it's a different deal-making environment, but you have to go there physically to, to, to be, um, you know, surrounded by, embedded in, and immersed in the culture of the people you're doing deals with. And I, I think that is, you know, even even if you're in Toronto and you're doing a deal in Toronto, that applies. Zoom, yeah. Zoom, start, phone. You got to yeah. look in the white, you know, the, the, uh, uh, um, brave heart, right. You know, you, you need to look in the whites of the eyes of, you know, the people that, that you're working with, if you want the, the LOI or the deal to stick. So I go back to, to relationships, right. You get there. How do you form these relationships in a different culture?
0: Yeah, that's the, uh, that's the tricky thing, but it's almost that you always know somebody everywhere you go, right? Yeah. It's just about reaching out, and I, whether it's Facebook or LinkedIn or whatever, or somebody that you knew from twenty years ago, right? Just you work through the network, and you realize this goes to that, and then you eventually you get the, the tenuous grip on a place, right? And then you can slowly build up your relationships uh,
1: better over time. But um, and, it's it's and really it's there's always a
0: connection for sure.
1: Is one way in these places, uh, and it, probably difficult to say this on film, but that you build relationships is with a duffel bag, you know, with a red X on it, left under the bridge on K Street. Um, <laughs> do, you, yeah. do you have, you know, are, is there a price of admission? Uh, so, you know, if this was a nightclub, is there a cover cost? To yeah, get into club? I mean, I, I think the thing is, there's the there's
0: always you know anywhere you go K Street or or wherever right you know that's a route that some people take but that's the slippery slope that always ends up like once once you once a hand is out and you fill it there'll always be hands out right and our our approach is the opposite where where there's a hand out we just go ask somebody else and somebody yeah. else and somebody else and eventually there's one hand out and everybody's like dude was your hand out and and like I found you know, when you, you do face these situations in any business, right? And you just refuse ever, ever to, uh, to succumb to it. Cause it's, you're done if you do Right. And it's just gotta be a fundamental part of the business.
1: And I feel like the discussion just ended for a second time right here. <laughs> you know, it, this is, if you want control in a deal, this is how you get it with boundaries on your value system or your morality. You once somebody knows what your boundaries are, I feel they um, that establishes a a moral authority that then you can use, you know, and you can push yeah. somebody back, right? And and it is, I think in deal making, because it's not sales, right? In sales, you have a rate card and a sell sheet and a price and a discount, ability to discount, and maybe you know, way to finagle. But in deal making, it it's largely internal. And so the thing we just talked about is yeah. hey, if there is something that is out, that is a bribe or outside of our value system, it, it's really your ability to look in the mirror and say, I've met the enemy and he is, I, it, it's not somebody else who's going to tank your deal. It's you. A lot of it is internal self-control. Does, yeah. that, does that mean anything to you or you don't think in those terms?
0: No, that, that's exactly it. But it, it's, it's really that, like, the nexus of like those two people who are negotiating, right? And I always try to like, step inside the other person's shoes and say, what do they yeah. really want, right? Because I mean, we were doing this deal uh, in Germany back in 2019, right? And w- we knew like, what was really important to the other guy and that he could only go so far in bending on, right? And-, and a lot of people would have just walked and said, that's-, that's too much to ask, right? But we just said, that's what he really wants in the whole context of the deal, you know, what's important to us. And then we got the deal done, right? The thing is, in my view, like if somebody looks inside of you, steps in your shoes, and realize you'll do anything, you'll 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 do anything to get the deal done, then your ethics are pushing on a string, right? And you 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 stand for nothing, you'll do anything. So how can they sign a piece of paper and trust you afterwards as well? Right. So you actually undermine your entire the entire transaction and your ongoing relationship by doing that up front. If he's a good guy, he won't trust you. If he's a bad guy, he'll come back for more.
1: Listen, I, I think this is, I mean, ultimately we've arrived somewhere that for me is everywhere. And you can tell that Brendan is a very experienced dealmaker just from this. He, you know, you, he, I'm talking about you in the third person, uh, you know, as if you weren't here you know, as, as I don't. Brendan, know. It's fine. He, he's a great guy. Sorry to see him go so suddenly. But I really liked him. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, the notion that dealmaking for, for junior dealmakers or people who you know, are in low stakes deals, generally, Uh, you know, which I would call sales, there's this feeling that the deal making is external. But really, it begins most of it is internal. What am I able to do? What am I willing to do? What do I stand for? What is where, where do what do I believe in? And how do I go home and look at my family and look at myself and say, I might not have got everything I wanted, but I did what I believe in. Yeah. And uh, and so when that is anchored within you, now you are able to deal with the external environment because people have a sense you aren't needy. They can't just keep asking for stuff. They can't walk you up to the line of doing a deal, right? And then ask for more at the last minute yeah. without consequences. Yeah. And you you can't. Get, you you know you, you can't create consequences outside unless there's consequences inside you hold yourself you can't hold anybody else accountable unless you hold yourself accountable and deal making is really starts with this internal strength. can we pause for a second? I think we hit some huge high points Tell us about the company you know we talked a little bit about silver the importance of silver what the company I think we're at a point where you can pitch us the company <laughs> tell, tell us a little bit about yeah yeah.
0: So uh, I'm CEO of Exelon Resources, which is uh, NYSE listed, NYSE American, under the symbol EXN. And we're a silver producer in Mexico, in the state of Durango. We've been operating for 16 years now, so a long history of production. We're also an acquirer and an explorer. And uh, in 2020, we, we kind of increased our asset base by about 15 times. You know, despite the pandemic and everything, our, our, our net asset value went from $50 million to $170 million. Um And... Uh, we uh, and we did two deals, three two deals. One bringing in a, a high quality silver project in Saxony, Germany, and the other one acquiring a gold project in Idaho called Kilgore. When we acquired Otis Gold, and that was an interesting transaction, just really about timing, about being in the right part of the cycle, and acquiring a very good asset um, for a very good price. Uh, only 22 million Canadian project that has an NPV right now of over 300 million dollars US. So that's our focus, you know. Produce, develop, explore, uh, keep on growing our resources, and keep being exposed and at the right point in this, you know, commodity cycle that we're in right
1: now. Why silver? What does silver have to do with anything? Yeah,
0: well, <laughs> there, there's two aspects, and you know, the first is gold as a precious metal, right? Um, it's the store of value for five thousand years plus now. Uh, you know, Bitcoin is taking some of the shine away, perhaps. But when you look at its importance over time as a backing for monetary systems, it's just it's just inarguable. Um, silver kind of gets some of the, the, the play off gold. It's a cheaper form. But, you know, historically, silver was uh, trading at a ratio of about 15 ounces to one. Uh, it's currently trading at 65 to one, but it's only produced at eight to one. Right. So there's a real like market disconnect there. There's a real trade there. And like, you know, despite being deal makers, at the end of the day, like miners and explorers are traders, right? Because our market, we can't invent a better element. We can't invent a better gold yeah. or silver. We're not we're not making shoes here, right? Okay, yeah, Version three point one now yeah, with right?
1: AI and machine learning, you know, upgrade for nineteen ninety-nine.
0: My gold's way better than your gold. That guy's silver, not so mm. good, right? So, so like it really is a bit about being understanding where you are in the cycle. And right now we're in a, in a period where governments are printing money. Uh, there's a lot of talk in inflation now, uh, increasingly so. I have my own thoughts on whether we're in a deflationary or inflationary environment. I think the thing is we're in an environment of change. And in, in periods of change, precious metals, these stores of value, are what you're looking for. So silver you know, was the, the foundation of the, the German uh, monetary system until 1873. Uh, you know the, the us system well into the 20th century um, so it is a critical monetary metal but now also with these very important industrial uses uh, and it 's hard to talk about solar cells being an industry because you know they are this foundations critical element of the green re- revolution and without silver you can 't have solar panels that 's what kind of carries the electricity from the cells to the copper and uh, and then into the grid um, so you know electric cars same thing we can go through the list of of technologies that use it, um, but silver is really interesting because it both rides on the back of gold, has this interesting disconnect in value, and then also has tremendous uh, industrial uses. Which you know, just really, when you've got investment demand and physical and, and industrial demand clashing, you've got the uh, you know the setting for a very interesting trade. And I think that's what we're in the midst of right now.
1: And so interesting that and. Do you, are you guys on the, the, the line of sin, you know, tobacco, alcohol, <laughs> st- mining, um, you uh, um, the, you know, my little boy, I mentioned this all the time, races, go-karts and it, the go-kart is not electric. I mean, electric go-kart, by yeah. the way, I don't know why they call them go-karts like these things. So, you know, in Europe they have formula four, formula three, yeah. formula two, formula one. This is formula five. Yeah, the fucking car goes seventy miles an hour with a seven-year-old in it. Right? <laughs> you know, he's he's going around the corner. He can't really even hold the G's. He can't hold his little yeah. head up. Uh, I mean, this is full-on wheel-to-wheel racing. But anyway, it's two-stroke. These are two-strokes. You know, blue smoke going up. And there's not a lot of them, but it is the the you know the activity of sin. So is this as you know in how is this viewed in terms of green? not green do you have enemies do you have lobbyists do you have greenpeace or you who are the guys that um uh sea shepherd is sea shepherd you know sea shepherd waits waiting outside your door with spear guns in the morning What, what is the environment you live in from the business that you're in of mining the the earth
0: yeah i mean we've got everybody everybody coming at us right and it's I, I think it's like what we were talking about earlier, right? It's that, that the, the, the nature of place. The mine is where the mine is. You can't move it. That's where yeah. it was formed, right? Yeah. So we're kind of, we're, we're sitting ducks, right? And you do have a lot of special interests that are like, those guys can't go anywhere, right? We can make a lot of money off of creating a cause against them. And I've learned a lot about yeah. the, the NGO business and in, in, there's good NGOs, there's bad, like there's, there's a good ethos, but sometimes the business is a bit dirty. Yeah. Um, but the mining business, I mean, like, you know, again, like right out on the frontiers, going up in the hills, trying to find gold, trying to find silver, trying to find copper. Um, it was difficult business and technology had a long time getting into it. And certainly, you know, through the first half of the 20th century, there were uh, there were disasters, there were crises, things weren't done properly. But the transformation of the industry since has been pretty extraordinary. And in part because of the efforts of these NGOs to, to improve um, the way that people do things. Um, So, but now you know, with all the advances the industry has has made, and I would say we're definitely trailing the oil industry um, in terms of the technology applied. But we need more technology applied to exploration and extraction. But now you know, how are you going to electrify the world without copper? You know, how are you going to have solar panels without silver? So we're at this interesting point where, look, if you want to combat climate change, if you want to have a green economy you need these metals, you fundamentally need these metals. So it can't be, do not mine at any cost. It's gotta be, how do you mine, you know, as ethically as possible with the latest technology and uh, with as much support as possible. And that gets into a whole you know, different discussion of like how much people should be paying for metal because, you know, metal is the first thing that goes into a product, right? With the very bottom of the totem pole. So everybody wants that first input to be as cheap as possible. Right? So if we can't price our metals, if it's a commodity that's priced in global markets and everybody's pressuring it down as much as possible, it's difficult to expect the best in technology, the best in execution, you know, the best in environmental um, uh, care right? If, if, if everybody's trying to crush down on the price that we, we sell at. So it's, that's an interesting kind of ethical discussion that hasn't really been properly entertained yet. A little bit, though, it is coming up. You know, Apple looking for ethical sources of metal, trying to is, recycle is more metal. Is there blood
1: silver? Is there blood silver? Uh, not
0: really. I, I mean, yeah. there's, there's hard work silver that is not, you know, artisanal miners uh, at high elevations have some really, it's a tough gig, right? Um, there's better ways of doing it. That's why the commercial miners can come in and, and employ and help do it properly. But it wouldn't be like blood diamonds where you've got you know that kind of conundrum um yeah in the very sourcing of it
1: one thing and another big takeaway by the way you, you look like you're 26 years old you don't have That's to tell me you know, <laughs> how old you are right? <laughs> I, maybe the screen let me make you a little bit bigger no i, I made you bigger and you look the same what, what uh-huh. age range are you in i guess we could just look it up because it yeah, early 40s 42 early 40s okay yeah I just want to tell you something about yourself. For people who are seeing you and listening, like you, Brandon is where you want. If you're listening to this and seeing him, this is this is where you want to be. Like I'm throwing emotional context. I'm interrupting him. I'm asking him tough questions. They're blood silver, right? <laughs> are you you pay bribes? And he isn't flapped. But the biggest thing that I notice about you, 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 know, I'm throwing high context emotion at you, and you are remaining settled and poised and you're not rising to the level of emotion that I'm having, you are communicating like the leader of a public company that is the shepherd of other people's dollars. It's it's a very sophisticated poise and presence that I don't see very often in companies. And it's some combination of your age, the pressure of running a public company, uh, and just being a well-sorted out, individual, likely my guess is from having been in a lot of deals and getting um, um, taken advantage of or subsumed or having the deal fall apart and losing money and at real high stakes, you know, and and really getting in alignment with what works. But you're a sophisticated leader, CEO, and dealmaker that comes through very prominently in the conversation.
0: Thank you. I'm not good at accepting compliments, but thank you. <laughs>
1: yeah, well, um, you know, I'll try and insult you here in a bit. But, know, but, fire,
0: uh, fire away. I think I one mean, of the uh, things is
1: r- really just trying uh, – nothing's personal, right? You
0: never take offense at anything, and, and like, your ideas get ch- – the more your ideas get challenged, the better refined they become, right? So I always, like, you know, come at me.
1: <laughs> well, well, that's excellent. Um, the and, and I think in your answers – they are, uh, you know, a lot of times we'll get answers to these questions when we're interviewing companies or looking to invest or assist, and they are out of the can. Like, you feel like the question that we're asking is just getting put in a question category, you know, and you have, you're taking out question. Oh, this is category A, question three. You're taking out the pat answer, but it feels to me like you're digesting the question and Answering in a place where you're trying to anchor to what I know and move me forward, not just throwing an answer, a media answer to the category. And I think a lot of people could learn from that skill set. Is really starting the answer at the point of confusion of the asker, and that also I feel is is a very strong point from you.
0: Yeah. yeah. My my wife's in communication, so it's I, I'm not very good at block and bridging. <laughs> yeah, okay,
1: but, <laughs> and, and, um, and so uh, and you've got a family, and um, you're wh- where are you guys based out of, and what is uh, your your family yeah,
0: like? based out of Toronto? Uh, no kids. Um, yeah. Both kind of very involved in the mining industry, so it's it's been it's been great. Like she's she's a wizard crisis communicator. Uh, works for some of the biggest mining companies in the world, so. Uh, just, you know, tremendous ally in the business, I guess you could say.
1: And, do you, uh, so you, but you don't work together? No, no. And would you, do you think that is something that could ever be successful? Yeah, I think so. Yeah.
0: Yeah. You do? It's, wow. Yeah. 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 We're, I mean, we're both stuck at home right now. Toronto is in a, a major lockdown since November. So okay. You her yelling down in the kitchen while well, I got the office for today.
1: <laughs> I was, I was telling a buddy of mine, uh, you know, my, my wife came in and um, we had to send a big payment off to the bank, recapitalization, and it's due at the end of the month. I, I, I tell her, so I'm telling my friend the story, you know, my wife comes in, I don't have any assistance or anything here because of COVID. And I tell her, hey, take this down to the post office and mail this the slowest way possible yeah. to the East Coast. And my buddy goes, she sent it overnight. Next morning, <laughs> I, you know, exactly. No doubt. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. So uh, uh, it's uh, it's you know different different spouses for different different careers. Uh, so let me see. You, you know, returning returning to deal making. G- g- give me an example of you, you know a story if you can. No, it's it's hard because my industry too the every example is a company and a person that doesn't really want their laundry, you know, aired out on the Ornclaff dealmaker podcast. And so we end up talking in these abstract this yeah. guy and my friend and the deal and it was, you know, a lot of money and uh, is there anything that is far enough back that you can really like take us inside a tough mining deal that you had to, you know, come in and save and what were the elements of the save yeah
0: so i probably go back to like kind of my early days in the industry itself like after i left lost around 2008 or so and uh, i joined this this company called uh Plangeo mines which had spun off a deposit called detour lake to detour gold in 2007 so i joined in 2008 and we were it was a really interesting thing because we had 20 million shares of detour gold right and the, the the first transaction was done with detour at a valuation of 350, so like a 70 million dollar deal, right? But then that 20 million shares worth 70 million, all of a sudden became worth 400, 600 million, right? But we were trading at a 20% discount because we were, you know, a hold code, there's a tax implication. So we were looking at ways to like really unlock that value for our shareholders. And you had hedge funds investing in us instead of detour gold because they could play the arbitrage. Um, so we ended up doing like a, a, a butterfly swap transaction to separate the company into two, um, put a million shares in our West African assets into one company, and then the 19 million shares remained in the company. We actually spun off this planned exploration. And then it was about merging those 19 million shares back in with, with Detour Gold in 2009. Now, in the midst of all this, right, you've got um, the, the credit crisis, right? So, you know, our, our stock was $5 in June. By September or October or November, it was sixty cents, right? And then trying to get back from that, and, and really, um, you know, then it was a, it was a pretty hard negotiation to say like how this deal should be done and what the fair way of doing it. Um, and and yeah, like I have a book on it somewhere, the the ins and outs and the personalities involved, right? But I think one of the it was it was really the lesson of, you know, what's best for the shareholders, what's best for the trade, right? How do you make the trade as efficient as possible? Yeah, And by doing this deal and like merging our, our hold code back in with Detour, uh, Detour went from like $7 all the way up to $40 in the next two years. And like that was part of the story where I remember investing in Planjo, this company was a, when I was a law student in 2003 at 10 cents. And by 2011, the stock was worth $11 and 50 cents, right? So, you know, 11 and a half thousand percent return. I had a small part to play in that, but it was really the lesson of like you know it's about the tr- it's about the trade, right? It's not about the personalities. It's not about these like little wins. It's really about what does the trade look like and how does that make the most money for everybody involved? And, I think that's and- I think that's partially the, the benefit of the industry that we're in, where you know we're not trying to grind people for pennies when you've got these big generational commodity trends happening around you.
1: I think. Uh, and and the takeaway I have from this, and what I see in deals, is when we get into a tight spot, we disconnect it from what we want or what they want, and we make it about what the deal wants. So we we anthropomorphize the deal, yeah, right, and say this is what the company wants, this is what the deal wants, and then we can say the right thing to do for the deal is this thing. You, right, this is the normal way to do it. This is if it ever goes to court, the judge is going to say, why didn't you do it this way? When we go to our shareholders, we're going to show it to them for three minutes. And if it's right down the fairway, they're going to sign off on it. You know, our board of directors it's going to be like poop through a goose. If That's even <laughs> an expression. So you tell me, do you want to find some weird way to paper it? That causes a lot of friction, lots of explanation, uh, you know, lots of frustration, lots of anxiety. Because, right? I'm not saying that deal can't be done. What I am saying is, it's not the right thing to do yeah. for the company and for the deal. So when you make it the right thing to do for the company, uh, and and that's actually, you know, you're anchoring it to norms, then I think it's a great way to push deals for it. Like this is in, in Harvard negotiations school, they would say, you know, but my impression is like all the Harvard negotiation stuff, they try and paste it on the deal-making, but it's really for the Israelis and the Palestinians mm. to work out <laughs> intractable differences yeah. about land borders, you know, and Katusha rockets. It's not, they're not really that type of negotiation, the best alternative to a negotiated agreement, what our side wants, what their side wants, a give and a take. I mean, I'm talking to you, a real, and I'm asking authentically, you know, a real deal maker who goes to, in mining, high stakes, you know, tens and hundreds of millions of dollars at at stake, you know, is is that Harvard law, Law School negotiation stuff pragmatic, or is it really about making a deal that everybody can live with and is fair?
0: Yeah, it's all about fairness and simplicity to the maximum amount yeah. possible, right? Like I, I, I studied uh, tax law when I was in, in law school, which, you know, uh, I went into corporate law, but I still have a fascination with tax law. So I do have like uh, an appreciation for the tax complexi- complexity, which can unlock a whole lot of value, but that drives the deal forward and can often be the, the crux of the deal, right? So you can leave the complexity there, but that's gotta work again for both people and it's yeah. obviously gotta be above board as well. But it, like, again, it goes back to like, it's like buying carpets or shawls in a bazaar, right? You know, it's, it's just about keeping that trade you know, above board, but creating something that's better than, than what was before. Um, yeah. And that's, yeah. that's the way deals should always work. But that's in my industry. There are industries where they are yeah. a lot more cutthroat and like, you know, zero-sum games. Um, in mining though, if it, if, if it's not working for everybody, then it doesn't work for anyone.
1: Yeah, no, I mean, you're a real deal maker. I think in the large deals we've seen, I mean, one way to think about it is if you, I don't know how mining is, but if you look at real estate transactions, you know, you'll see a series of assets were sold for $170 million, $135 million, $140 million. Like really? Why isn't it, yeah, uh, 141 million, two hundred eighty-five thousand, three hundred thirty and ninety-two cents. Like those guys yeah. can do math. Those guys yeah. care about money. They have accountants and law firms, right? Because at some point, it just you know has to become a fair deal at a number that everybody can live with.
0: Yeah, I think the interesting ones though are though when the other side is is stressed. If you've got a distressed seller, like how do you do a fair deal there, right? That's the tricky yeah. one when you know you can really grind them down and they have no other options. But that's the same thing. you got to step inside their, their shoes and say, like, where is their breaking point? Like, where also, like, yeah. where will I break them? And then where will they hate me afterwards and speak badly about me and never do a deal with me again? Because people, you know, they pick themselves up and then you want to do and, and they're like, I'm never doing a deal with you again. Right. So there is always that respect right? You can drive people, you can build respect by
1: driving people right to the edge, but never over. billion percent. And at the risk of, you know, you calling up Todd and going, you know, I went on Orange podcast and then he (laughs) talked the whole time. (laughs) (laughs) That's what you guys do. (laughs) uh, Yeah. uh, Very early in the deal business. And uh, this is the last thing I'll be respectful of your time, but see if you can relate to this. Uh, I call my partner up and I go, I I can get a 10% spread on this big trade. It's a $40 million trade. And I said, I can get a, you know, we're we're asking for a five and a half, six percent spread. I go, I know how to sell this. I figured out the pitch, you know, I figured out the emotions and the pull. I have a big enough pipeline. I can get a ten percent spread on the deal, right? And Russell came to me and he said, Yeah, I know you can. You're smart. You figured it out. But don't be a pig. Yeah. Leave yeah. something on the table for the other people. We're gonna we're gonna get a reputation. For that behavior and no one's going to want to do business with us i know you're going to get you know the ferrari you wanted or whatever you know if you i know what you did or you built a spreadsheet and you go it's six percent that's my regular pay but you know i can get a ferrari 488 uh <laughs> you know, with the wheels the carbon fiber wheels if i and then you said okay with that goal in mind where can i you know and then you figured out a better pitch and you get yeah, you worked really hard and you created this additional leverage except for we don't need to be pigs. We're making a ton of money. Leave something on the table for everyone else.
0: Yeah. And it is like, I mean, it's something I often say to our team as well. Like it's don't be greedy, right? You know, just don't be greedy. It sounds so simple. Right. And there is that balance of like, you know, doing what's right for your shareholders in the company. Um, But you know, when you're being greedy, right. You know, when you're, you're waiting too long to do the trade, you're waiting too long to raise the money or you're just grinding somebody too hard. Right. And it's, Uh, Yeah, don't be greedy. Especially in this industry, you know, people just wait too long. They don't sell or they're trying to get another penny so they don't buy and they just end up missing the trade entirely. And that's just something you always got to fight against.
1: So will you get fatigued? So can somebody fatigue you and you just go, I'm out? (laughs)
0: No, I think some people have wished I would. Yeah. Um, Yeah, like once you get in deal mode, you just, you go you grind. Right and, and you know I'm not in deal mode right right now, uh, but it's a weird feeling, right? You you just you don't need sleep. I don't need sleep a lot anyways, but like you do not need sleep, and you just it's it's an amazing buzz, right? And uh, and I love it, right? But you gotta you gotta prep for it. You gotta have the deal that you can actually do that on that makes it worthwhile, right? But uh, I'll go I'll grind real hard. <laughs>
1: and the the, uh, the the last thing I want to say, like I I love you. You're you're a very nice person. I mean, I don't know you that well. You could be, you know, and, uh, but, um, but, the, I think what I'm hearing, which is really interesting. I grind. I put my boots on the ground. We, we work hard. I have to return capital for shareholders. We take risk. We're very focused on every dollar. And then on the other side, you're a very nice person that smiles and, and it, um, you're, the, you're not sort of a, a grumpy grinder trying to get everything for himself and nothing for anybody else and those two things can exist in the same person grinding, working hard wanting the best, taking care of the shareholders uh, um, putting yourself in pressure situations, doing large deals with high stakes and at the same time being a genuine authentic transparent kind fun to interact with person and i think in our mind's eye when we think of high stakes deal makers doing 50 70 million 100 million dollar deals we don't see we don't believe those two things you know that's not an archetype that's in the movies or on tv but yeah. but hopefully a lot of people see this and see the real world you know those, those the, the, the the characters you see, and maybe this is my really my last point, the characters you see in TV shows and movies were developed by 23-year-old writers who, yeah. are, who are writing about dealmakers from basically the, the wellspring, which is the godfather, right? Yeah, yeah. And, 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 and extending those archetypes into media, but it's not really representative.
0: No, uh, well... It- I mean, sometimes, sometimes you run across characters who are the, the caricature and you're like, oh God, here we go, right? And maybe you get a deal done, maybe you don't, but seldom you do, or you just don't want to, right? It's not worth your while. But, uh, but it is funny, like watching those shows and like somebody will propose a trade and you're like, that is the dumbest trade ever. Like nobody, that's stupid. That's not good advice. Uh, was a, I think an HBO show that had something like that on recently. But,
1: so did uh, you watch Billions?
0: I haven't watched Billions actually, yeah. I want to, so that's, that's, all, that's on deck.
1: Uh, so Billions, Succession, and Suits, yeah. I think are sort of the closest thing to deal-making, but on the other hand, not a perfect representation.
0: No, and there's industry, which I think is uh, coming out of the UK, like being like an investment banker, young investment banker coming up in London. Um, also, uh, it's actually not too bad, I think. But uh, So it's called industry? industry yeah i think it's on oh, ETI. Yeah. Yeah. i'll have to see it yeah, we'll, right. we're checking out
1: well i'm going to let you get back to the world uh, you know your work of of um, you know finding these silver these metals bringing it to the market doing it in a way that is ethical helps industries um, that we need you know to get in the next generation of technology and and i really appreciate you putting that in context and bringing a warm, charismatic, kind face to the mining industry, which most of us, you know, think of quite differently. So thank you.
0: Yeah, I mean, lots of great people in the industry. Um, that's that's what I've learned over the while. And it's because of the things we have to go through, the places we have to go, right? And it's a very collegial industry, an incredibly collegial, it should be more so, but it's pretty good because we're all working towards those same goals. It's, it's pretty, and it's funny
1: because cool. it's the opposite of tech. Tech is full of assholes, <laughs> right? You don't have to go anywhere. Isn't yeah. it really hard work? There's no risk, right? You're working on your computer, you don't even be an asshole. And then mining, which has all these challenges, has these wonderful people in it.
0: Yeah. Explain it to me. But know? I think it's, it's the, um, you know, mining, like our inventions take millions of years to form, right? And, and I mean, if you find something, it's going to take minimum five, probably 10, maybe 15 or 20 years to actually put into a production, right? Into production. So I'm always fascinated by tech where it's like, I have good friends in tech and it's, it's a three or six month obsolete, you know? And like that kind of, oh, it's, that's a, that's a, you know, you're fighting amongst velociraptors, right? Things are getting taken away right away, right? So I'm always blown away by how fast the tech industry can reinvent itself and tweak to make it better and better and better. So I kind of understand the, the immediacy of like, we need to steal now, you know, you can't have this. Yeah. Um, we're yeah. luckier in the mining industry in that we can take our time, share ideas because stealing, you know, a million ounces of gold in the ground, it's pretty tough, right? So there is a, a big difference there. And that, that's a good thing about the industry though.
1: Awesome. Well, thank you for sharing that part of your world with us. I really appreciate We've done what I set out to do with this, which is bring a real deal maker and look inside, get a window inside the the world of high-stakes, real deal making, and how nuanced and and professionalized it is. Thanks a lot, Oren. That was great okay. fun. I really enjoyed it. All right, we'll see you next time. Thank you. Hey, thanks for listening, and be sure to stay tuned for more great content from Oren Claff.